So um, I'd like to share a, kind of a unique phenomenon with all of you, but it, I want to start it with a question to you first. After a hard day on Monday, what do you feel like doing in the evening? For me, I like to try and get back to the weekend glow just a little bit. I like to come home and enjoy a meal, relax, talk to the family a bit, maybe play some games. However, what actually happens for me on every other Monday is that at 7 o'clock, the music team gathers for music practice. So what that looks like for me is that I have to run home, cram dinner down in 5 to 10 minutes, and then bolt off to the church office to go through two weeks of music. And uh, I admit that there are some times, maybe even many times, when I don't necessarily feel like that's what's best for me. <laughs> but then, at about 7.20, something kind of curious happens. I begin to hear the music, and I, get, and I think about the words that I'm actually singing. And it cheers my heart, and it makes me thankful to be gathered with other believers glorifying God. And this feeling uh, is magnified even more when we're working on a new song. It reminds me that God is good, that He's faithful, loving, righteous, and fair. And I think this phenomenon that I just described to you is one of the main reasons the psalmist in our psalm today tells us to sing new songs to God. Today we're going to dive into why this happens in the hope that you will also feel encouraged to sing new songs. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the psalms. Thank you for um, your Son and your Spirit in our lives. I pray that you would be in this moment, Lord, that you would touch our hearts to know you better, that you would put a song in our hearts and on our lips, Lord, so that we can be reminded of you and so that the world can know you better. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're finishing um, our formal study of, of Psalm 98. And we're going to be focused on verses 7 through 9. Let's read them together, if you don't mind. Psalm 98, verses 7 through 9. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness righteousness and the peoples with equity. In Psalm uh, 98, 1 through 3, there's a focus on the salvation that God has worked in the past. We heard Jeremiah talk about that. In Psalm 98, verses 4 through 6, the time emphasis is on what God is doing in the present as our King. And in verses 7-9, through nine, the focus here today is on the rightness and equity of God's future judgment, what's coming. In all cases, the response is to sing and make music, particularly new music. But the reason why, or rather the time focus, changes from passage to passage. 
And I find this musical response to God's rightness and equity equity, um, curious. Although we don't know exactly when this particular psalm was written, we do know the history of Jewish life. And it's one that's been marked with suffering. Suffering at the hands of evil empires like Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. And even when Israel was independent, most of its own kings, its judges and its priests were pretty bad dudes. At best, they were asleep at the wheel, and at worst, they were highly corrupt. And in considering all of this persecution, all of this evilness and unfairness, our psalmist still sees reason to sing. Why? What's the reason? Look at verse 9 with me. The Lord, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The psalmist is looking forward to a day when God is going to fix all of these problems. And he's not going to fix them like we do. He's going to fix them in perfect equity, is an outflow of his perfect rightness. In the middle of their suffering, God's people, his true people, were looking forward to a future day when all of these injustices would be made right. Their hope in a future where God fixed everything with righteousness and equity sustained them in the present. We see a snippet of this when Elijah is crying out to God. And he's telling him that he's the only faithful one left in Israel. And God responds to him in 1 Kings 19, verse 18. Elijah is in the middle of despairing and he's lost hope. And what does God say to him? He says, yet I, the Lord, will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Even when a nation of millions of people had rebelled against God, there is a group of faith-filled people who are trusting in God to deliver them. These 7,000 people are the kinds of people who wrote our psalms. Those who lived in terrible times and had questions and doubts about God. But they clung to his word in their hope that he is who he said he is, perfect, right, equitable, and just. I'd like to take a moment just to look at those words, right, righteous, and equity. What's the difference? Righteousness is focused on the inward character of who God is. It's his nature. And it's an identity of being right. It's just a definition of who he is. He is just. He is honest. He is blameless and pure, truthful and perfectly loving. Equity, on the other hand, is focused on the outward action that flows from his inward character. It is the action of being fair and impartial. God is perfectly right. Therefore, or because of this, he acts with perfect fairness and impartiality toward others. He acts with perfect justice. So that leads us to the question, why is God's judgment good enough to produce this hope? Well, there are several reasons. I just said that he's perfectly equitable 
He doesn't show partiality. He can't be bought. He's not grading on a curve. And he's not checking our balance sheet of nice versus naughty. Secondly, it's for all time, past, present, and future, as I just referenced in the beginning of the message. God doesn't forget. He's working right now. And he sees past the end of time. He's made all the calculations necessary to deal with history today and everything that's coming at us next. Third, it will correct every wrong that has ever been done, as well as every right thing that wasn't done. It is complete. He will address all the actions and the inactions, all the words, all of the deeds, and even all the thoughts. And fourth, thankfully, we have nothing to do with it. God can and does save anyone and everyone on his own power. We don't have anything to add to or to subtract from that equation. There are no trips There are no tips and tricks, there are no quotas to meet, and there is no checklists to complete. And all of that is really good. So what is the correct response to all this goodness, righteous inequity? Look at verses 7 through 8 with me. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. It's not just humanity that's looking forward to this judgment. It's the entirety of his creation, and humanity is supposed to join in. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that I'm generally not a poetry fan, so to translate what an ocean roar and a river clap and a hill singing really means hurts my brain. I'd prefer it if the psalmist would just say something like, Hey, you, sing, because nature does. And when we began studying the psalm, I openly questioned David as to what these verses really mean several times. And David just smiled at me like he's doing right now. (laughs) And he said, you got to figure it out. So, I was forced to go listen to the ocean and the rivers and to ponder hills singing. Have you ever heard the ocean's roar or rivers clapping? Close your eyes for just a second and try to picture the sound in your mind. Doesn't it sound, to me at least, like a giant stadium of people clapping in thunderous applause? And after all the literal months of pondering, I've also realized that I've heard hills sing. It happens just before dawn when the sky begins to brighten. And it always starts with just one bird. And it quickly turns into a chorus of all the birds singing together. In full disclosure, I am not a morning person. But in the spring and in the summer, I will wake up early just to hear all of this beautiful music at sunrise. And you know what's even more awesome about this music? It's new every morning, so I never get tired of hearing it. God's creation is also suffering from the effects of sin, but every morning it wakes up in hopeful anticipation, 
is today the day when God is going to make it right for us? We need to join in this same anticipation of God's good judgment with our own songs. And this may seem like an odd response, but singing is actually the best response. Because singing produces three simultaneous effects. First, it reinforces within us the truth that God is, in fact, a good judge who is right and equitable. Secondly, it is a strong demonstration to others that God is, in fact, a good judge who is righteous and fair. And third, it serves as an offering of worship to God, acknowledging and thanking him for being a judge who is right and equitable. This phenomenon is produced in us as God's creation because he has designed music to uniquely engage our heart, our soul, and our mind in one activity. This is what happens to me at 7.20 every other Monday. It's a real way to live Matthew 22, verse 37, to love the Lord, our God, with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. Music engages our heart and emotions, and movies use this to great effect. There have been uh, several occasions where I've been able to watch a movie that has a, a heroic or an exciting scene, but the music isn't in it. You just hear the words and see the action. And you know what? It isn't the same. There's no connection in the moment. This happiness of, and feelings of honor that are supposed to be there just aren't. Music that focuses on God and his attributes connects us to him. If you've ever been at a Christian concert, singing with a huge group of people like that drives away fear and reconnects us to God's goodness and control over the world. It gives us a glimpse into what's coming for us, a time when we will be actually in God's presence and see his glory. It's this same vision that gave Jesus the strength to carry out his mission that was paved with suffering, the suffering of the humanity he saw around him, as well as his own personal suffering. Second, music speaks to our soul. When we hear good music, especially music that's focused on God and his attributes, we look forward to a future with him in his presence. The world grows dimmer and Jesus grows a little brighter. And third, music combined with words, what we call singing, helps us to remember. How many of us remember the main point from the sermon three weeks ago? How many of you could probably sing all the songs we had today by heart? It works. The world actually understands this too. But they take advantage of it for self-serving purposes. And I found this fascinating. The world uses it to separate us from God and our dollar. The music industry this year, worldwide, is going to gross roughly $65 billion in revenue. And to put that in perspective, soccer is the world's largest grossing professional sport. And it will gross roughly $50 billion this year. And here in the U.S., the NFL is the largest grossing sport. And these are all entertainment, right? 
The NFL will only gross a paltry $17 billion this year. The world knows the effect of music on our lives. So we know that God is a good judge. We know now that he's designed music to enliven our heart and our soul and our mind toward him. So one of the key questions for us this morning maybe is, why don't we live like this? There are several reasons. One of the great commandments of the world is to be true to yourself and to trust yourself. Experience has shown us that there's no one else out there that is working as hard for us than us. It's easy to believe that this worldly reality translates to God, but that is a lie. No one cares more about us than God, not even us. He desires that we would trust him more with more of our lives every day so he can show his goodness to us. Many of us have been in front of judges before. And no matter what side of the aisle you're on, it's a tense thing because you never really know if the decision's going to swing your way. How often do we really want others making decisions for us in our daily life? Jesus gives us a picture of how we should deal with this. Our own desires, our decisions, and our actions. Submit them to God, the perfect judge. Jesus had fears. He didn't want to go through the pain of being crucified. He asked God in the garden, if there was another way out, can we please go with plan B? But he also knew God to be a good judge, and he submitted himself to his judgment in every area of his life, including his life. He was able to do this because he lived life a little bit backwards. He lived in the knowledge that God's future plan is perfectly good and trustworthy. He believed in a future where God's rightness and equity would rule over everything. Secondly, we forget about God's goodness, where we've come from, and that we are citizens of heaven. We forget that this citizenship connects us to Jesus, our King, our Judge, and our Priest, personally. We forget because we see the world in front of us moment by moment, and it feels more real. Its demands on us are more urgent, and it's demanding our action to deal with it or else. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Jesus modeled a life remembering God's goodness. Why do you think Jesus healed so many people? To show people he was from God? Certainly. But also because God's nature is compassionate and good. Jesus did what God told him to do and what he saw God doing. He was God's best demonstration of his goodness. Why do you think it took Jesus roughly 30 years to carry out God's mission. For me personally, I think he could have done it in a week or so. Beam down from the Father, prove he was God, do a bunch of miracles, suffer, die, and then beam back home. Mission accomplished. I think it took 30 years so that we would have a demonstration of a full life lived by someone who knew God fully 
and knew God was fully good and loving. I want to say that one more time. He did this so that we would have a demonstration of a full life lived by someone who knew God fully and at the same time knew that God was fully good and loving. And third, we don't trust God fully. We don't see him face to face, and worse, we do see bad things happening to us and around us. So we doubt that God is really working or that he is really good. And you're not alone. The Psalms are full of people asking these kinds of questions to God. And it's by no coincidence that many of these Psalms were and are intended to be sung. They ask questions like, how long are these bad things going to last? In Psalm 35, 17, the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. They ask questions like, Why have you forgotten me? Psalm 13, 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And why do I feel like you're punishing me? Psalm 66, 10 through 12 says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into a net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. But what's the answer in every case? Even though I feel this way, even though they felt this way, God is still good and his promises are still true. And he proved his faithfulness throughout history most clearly in Jesus' life of bringing goodness to those he came into contact with in the world through his death and resurrection. Because of his life and work, we can have a rational hope that he's going to do it for me again and in me and in my future. We need to sing these truths just like the psalmist who wrote them and God's people have sung for millennia. How then should we live? Let me ask you another question. Doesn't it feel great when someone you voted for is elected? Why? They haven't done anything yet. But what they've done is made promises to do things that will fix the problems, whatever you think they are. Your problems, your neighborhood's problems, your country's problems. We live in happiness in that moment because the hard work of getting our person elected is complete and now we get to see them fix the issues. As Christians, we need to remember the promises of God and that he has selected Jesus as our king and priest. God has put Jesus in charge and he is going to fix everything. He'll fix everything inside of us and outside of us. He'll fix our communities, our country, and our world. We need to live in the light of this truth and sing new songs about it. We need to live in and express the joy of his coming judgment. What would you do if you personally knew a really good lawyer and judge? One who was super patient and kind, and by the way, knew the future. Wouldn't you bring all of your decisions to him? Wouldn't you discuss all of your situations with him? Your family issues, your work problems, your vacation plans, 
your purchasing decisions and ask him what to do about all this stuff? Well, surprise. We have exactly that in Jesus, and he wants to be at the center of our lives, and he wants to guide all of our decisions. Throughout history, humanity has lived under God's justice, has delivered through imperfect, partial, and most of the time downright evil people. But in Jesus, we have a perfect high priest, king, and judge. We have one that skips the middleman and works directly with us through his word and his Holy Spirit. Jesus has the connections. He has the power. He, had, he has the knowledge to help us perfectly. He is actually going to make everything right because of his rightness in his equitable judgment. And the better we know God, the more we'll trust him and the more we'll be excited to tell others about him. If we live in the light of this, our most natural response is to sing. It'll recalibrate our hearts to believe in these things again, just like the phenomenon I'd experience at 7.20 every other Monday. Life gets better for me, even though nothing has changed in my environment. It's just that I finally remembered, oh yeah, God is good. He is good. And here's an amazing part too. Your out loud song will draw others to him as well. Because people know that your life is different. And everyone understands that we only really sing about things that we feel are true in our hearts. God has given us the gift of song. He's done this because he knows it will help us remember him, his amazing goodness, and his wonderful judgment. Singing new songs builds our anticipation for the future and reengages our minds to rediscover Jesus in a fresh way. Singing is the most obvious way to love our Lord, our God, Jesus, with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind at the same time. It does so many things. It helps us to remember his character of rightness, his perfect judgment and equity. This in turn allows us to trust him again in more and new ways. This improved trust builds our anticipation of our future with God. The gift of living in his presence as our perfect king and judge. This knowledge in turn strengthens us in the moment to lean on God more and love him more. And singing adds our voices to the choir of God's creation already singing in new anticipation every day. And your voice in that choir will tell the world around us two things, how great Jesus is, and that they too can have the same hope and joy in a good and loving judge that we proclaim through our song. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of song. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us a way to serve you in such a joyous way with our heart and our soul and our mind, Lord. I pray that you would put new songs in our heart, that you would make your mercies new to us every morning, Lord. 
and that this newness will help us to trust in you more, to seek you more, and to put you more in the center of our lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.